This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the Algernon Blackwood story, The Insanity of Jones, originally published in his book, The Listener and Other Stories, in 1907. So I love Algernon Blackwood. He is one of my favorite writers, and I especially love his wilderness horror, The the Willows is the famous one everybody knows, and I'm very much looking forward to covering that and some of the others someday. But even in his non-wilderness horror, wilderness adventure stories, I just find his prose mesmerizing. The Insanity of Jones uh, is a gorgeously written story about workplace violence. It's a, it's about a man who goes to his job at his office and shoots the place up. He murders somebody there. And the combination of this horrific act that is uh, becoming far too commonplace right in our own society uh, that combination with this gorgeous prose created a really disturbing effect for me and in fact it felt a lot like reading lolita right where you get this florid prose that is describing monstrous deeds yeah i absolutely agree with what you're saying glenn the, the editor in me found some of his style to be infuriating there are paragraphs that he summarizes in the first sentence of a new paragraph. And this whole story has this very odd sort of circular style to it where where the information is constantly folding back in on itself. And that felt like padding to me in terms of word count. But even though that bothered me on on a certain stylistic level, I could not stop thinking about this story or wanting to reread it. It is beautiful. And there are incredible ideas at play in the story. And the way he obscures information or remains within and plays with the subjective and objective view of things. I just think is incredible. I I also love this story and I'm excited for us to talk about it. That style that you're talking about there is I think something that we'll want to get to in the discussion. In fact, I have craft as our first topic to tackle when we get to the discussion. But before we do that, I think we need to get through the recap. So let's jump into it. Definitely. Well, this story is split into three chapters, so we'll do the recap in in those sections. Uh, The first chapter is obviously chapter one, which begins by telling us a little bit about the kind of world Jones inhabits. There are, in a sense, two worlds. One is the world of form and appearances, superficial world. The other is the world of causes, hidden behind doors of the imagination, left half ajar, that most people are content to hurry past. But John Jones is not such a man. He is a man who is capable of journeying across the shifting frontier of the world of hidden causes. And it is his story about this journey that we are about to hear. Jones can see past the facade that covers the sham appearance of reality. Measurements of space and time, both created by man, are arbitrary nonsense. Jones believes that he straddles the borderland to the other region, where ancient memories lay open to the sight, and where the forces behind human life stand plainly revealed. Jones can just make out from his position the hidden springs at the very heart of the world. The opening paragraphs of this story are incredibly dense, both in just in terms of the the prose style, but also in terms of the content, and even in in some sense the the world building that Blackwood does, the story opens very much like Poe's "The Murders in the Rue Morgue" did, with a, a contentious observation about the world, and then a transition into the story. the The opening line here is, "Adventures come to the adventurous, and mysterious things fall in the way of those who, with wonder and imagination." And then it goes on for about a paragraph before we get. Uh, a full stop at the end of it. But when Poe does this, his story was set up as an an offering of evidence to support a claim about how the world works. But 
I think for Blackwood, this transition from the observation to the story is much more subtle and, and more artful. So in my mind, Poe almost seemed like he was having to slip a story into an article about psychology. Like he had to convince people to read a work of fiction or, or, or trick them into it. But Blackwood is using this preamble to establish a premise and a mood for the story, and it flows a lot better. So right off the bat, I'm, I'm hooked by this in ways that I don't think I quite was for The Murders in the Room Morgue, no matter how much I love that story. Blackwood isn't trying to convince us of anything in this opening. He's just stating the premises that, that the story then will follow from. And everything is tied together. The opening paragraph about the types of worlds that exist flow right into the type of man that Jones is, which flows a little bit more into his life. So that's a great observation. And and I too felt that there was a sort of Poe element at play in the beginning of this story. I also love how artfully Blackwood integrates this premise throughout the whole first chapter that set up what's a great second and third act of this story. He constantly is returning to this and giving us evidence for it rather than giving us um, five pages of dense imitation of Kant followed by uh, (laughs) mystery that is solved by the fact that an orangutan has escaped and is trying to imitate people. This is just a much more real story. I, I really think there's a lot of art at play in what Blackwood is doing. Well, before we get into the, the plot of this story, before Blackwood gets into the plot of this story, he presents Jones to us as someone in the midst of, uh, I don't know, a metaphysical crisis. And he thinks that the world as observed is a, a sham. As you, you said, Brandon, it's arbitrary nonsense. It's a clumsy representation of another world. And that other world is more real, and it exists behind the curtain of our observable world. And, and this is an old idea, right? For, for Plato, this was called the theory of forms, this idea that there is a, a realm of existence made up of the perfect ideal forms of things. But this version that Jones is imagining, I think, is much more sinister than the Platonic ideal. Uh, it's a lot more like the Matrix, I think, and 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 we see this in this description uh, that he gives of the the vision of Saint Paul's quivering and melting away. Though I want to be clear that that's not at all where this story is going, but it's really evocative to me, and it is an intense kind of midlife crisis. It's not necessary. It's not just a midlife crisis of not really feeling happy with the life choices he's made. He's not sure that reality is real. Yeah, and I'll just say one more thing that we learn about Jones here at the opening, which is that he's not interested in discovery. So he does know in the very core of his being that this observable world is a sham, but he doesn't want to study this insight that he has. He doesn't want to share this knowledge with other people. He has no interest at all in being a philosopher or a physicist. He's not trying to understand the world, and he doesn't even want to talk to other people about his perceptions and his observations. And the result of this is that he is alone in his existence. He's utterly alone in a world he thinks is not actually real. He's totally isolated himself through a series of really his own choices. And his his beliefs help justify his isolation to himself. He has a real sort of superiority complex to the people around him. And that, that's evidenced by the fact that he's just so bored by his day job, which is as a clerk at a fire insurance office. And he knows he's a good worker and he keeps up appearances. But deep down, this knowledge that he has of, of the secrets of the world make him believe he's better than all of the other, you know, office drones, which is not a phrase Blackwood would use, but it's really what he's describing that he works with. By all appearances, Jones is just like the other workers. Maybe he's more competent, but in his mind, and because it's never challenged, he's able to cling to this belief of being a detached observer who in another world would have been a king. And this is not a psychology that's unfamiliar, I think, to many of us today, if we encounter it in the workplace or in the world. Jones also has no patience for the popular movements of psychism or clairvoyance or clairaudience that are gaining sweeping popularity among his contemporaries. This is, as you said, Glenn, he has no use for the casual interest 
that people show towards cheap occultism, as he calls it. And this is because he has knowledge of these true workings of the world, not just belief or suspicion. He believes he knows. John Enderby Jones, as he is fully named, knows that he is an inheritor of a long series of past lives. He is the result of all of the past activities of himself, occupying different bodies in different time periods. And he's caught up in the question of how someone with his specialness has ended up as he has, which is just a clerk in an insurance office. Right. So Jones believes in reincarnation and he feels very passionately that he knows a little bit of something about his past lives. So for the weirdness or the the speculative part of this story to work, which is really to say that for us to take Jones seriously, Blackwood has to dismiss the sorts of things that people will say when they believe that they had a past life in some historical period. So although Jones is drawn to certain historical periods and feels as though he had lived in them, he doesn't think that he was anyone special or significant or even necessarily anything other than a peasant or a slave, right? He doesn't you know, believe that he was Cleopatra or something like that. Yeah, the way Jones thinks about this is that he – is that all of his past selves were unremarkable in, a, in the sense of worldly success and accomplishment. What makes him remarkable is his ability to – have the insight of his past lives to know the truth about the hidden workings of the world. And so that's the chip he carries around on his shoulder. Not that he was a peasant, but I, you know, the text says that he was kind of unflaggingly brave. He has this great belief in himself, but he's never been tested in any meaningful way. And as a result, the majority of people in the world are uninteresting to Jones unless he can suss out, that he has interacted with them in a past life. He doesn't have a personal life then as a result, but he's always looking. He's always vigilant to see if he can find somebody that he knew from before, from a past life. Some of these people from the past were enemies of his whose debts must be settled. And we're told that 10 years ago, while Jones was a junior clerk, he sees a man in the inner office who is growing in estimation in the eyes of the company. And Jones becomes certain that this man that he saw, which, who was just an assistant manager at the time, had done something terrible to him in a past life. And this sets Jones on a path where he now must settle this account in some way. This assistant manager over the intervening years, over the intervening years becomes a full manager in the company. And though Jones interacts with him very little, their paths cross in odd ways. Jones takes this as proof that they're meant to interact in some way, that this reckoning is going to come. But he also grows to loathe the man. And he just finds the manager to be a despicable human being. But Jones isn't one to let emotions get in the way of his work, and he continues to do his work excellently. And eventually, through a series of fates, I suppose, he's promoted to the role of the manager's private secretary. This is a speculative fiction story. It's a weird fiction tale. So some of these things about reincarnation and and centuries-old adversaries that hop from body to body, that stuff might turn out to be true. But But right here, right at this point, Jones just seems like someone who's unable to connect with people to participate in in a community of any sort because his his reaction to to people that he recognizes as being from the past is always negative he's not walking around the streets of of london seeing people who give him this sense that he knew them in a previous life and that those people were his friend or part of his community or had done something good to him he either is indifferent to people or he assumes that they have wronged him in some way. Uh, Jones, I think, might be in some real trouble here. Yeah, well, I think he has... Yeah, you're absolutely right. But this manager is easily a loathsome character. And that really works to feed the kind of psychological element of this story. The manager is a fat, red-faced, bald man. And he's just a grotesque, the way he's described in this story. But he's an excellent businessman. 
he's worthy of the esteem of his colleagues and superiors, but he's cruel to his subordinates. Jones, though, through his unwavering professionalism and his ability to perform his duty without the interference of his emotions, and perhaps also because of his special intuitive faculty, finds that the manager pays him a certain type of respect that he doesn't see among the other subordinates. And as these two men continue to work together, two changes take shape in Jones. The first is that Jones begins to have evil dreams in which he's tormented by a tall, thin man from a past age. The other change that takes place, Blackwood says, is harder to describe. But it's that he discovers that a part of him has been asleep, almost another personality entirely, and that it's beginning to awaken. And that part of himself has fixed its attention on the manager. And that's the end of chapter one. This is both a, a creepy and an enticing chapter break here. I want to turn the page. I want to know what's going to happen next, but I'm almost afraid to because it so clearly is not going to lead to any kind of happy ending. It certainly doesn't. But chapter two opens with a description of Jones's life outside of work. At work, as we've said, he keeps himself busy. But once he leaves, he returns to the other region that occupies his mind, where he's described as an old inhabitant and a rightful denizen. This other personality that awoken inside him in the last chapter and his own personality, his own sense of self, has begun to fully separate. There's the Jones of the fire insurance office and the Jones of the mysteries now. And the two never meet. Jones of the Mysteries often spends his evenings in a trance in his apartment or wandering the streets, and he feels encumbered by the physical demands of his body. However, one cannot keep these things separate for long. And Jones experiences something that brings the mystery Jones into the forefront during the working day. The manager had been absolutely vicious to Jones. He berated and humiliated him to the point where even the good old fire insurance office Jones nearly speaks up and defends himself to the boss. When the manager turns on Jones, Jones feels he sees him truly for the first time and that mystery Jones rises up and provides a vision and it's revealed to Jones that the manager is the evil man from his dreams. And Jones knows that retribution is near. We've all probably worked a job that we didn't like very much and just wanted to go home and not be at work and, and find some kind of escape. Jones, look, Jones doesn't have video games to go home and play. And that's real unfortunate for him, I think. But the way that Blackwood describes what Jones is doing when he goes home and just kind of lives in this trance, or, or what he describes as spiritually or, or mentally traveling to what is called the other region, uh, Jones thinks of this other region as being very near the place where poets and saints and the greatest artists have moved and thought and found their inspirations. And that Sounds awesome. I would like to go to that place as well after work. That sounds great. But we've already seen that something sinister is going on here, and that's how this this section that you've just narrated even ends, right? So this the existence of or the the belief in this other world, even though he thinks it's this beautiful place, isn't helping Jones in any way. It's it's actually making him hateful, and this revenge seems to be the only feeling that he's able to have in the real world world. This is this is not unwinding from work. This is a, a real disturbing and dangerous form of escapism. He's absolutely trapped in his own mind. He has nobody to show him any kindness, nobody to spend time with, nobody to talk about how his boss is a jerk over a glass of beer. There's nothing in his life other than his odd alienating beliefs and his belief that he's superior to other people that allow him to function throughout the day. 
And I mean, this story is about a person who is just entirely isolated and the world has turned cancerous for them. And it's, it's very, very dark in reality, what we're seeing. And, and I'm glad you pointed out that he associates himself once again with saints and poets and artists, that he's absolutely deluded himself into thinking that there's value, that he's elevating his soul by coming home from work and sitting on the floor until he has to go to the bathroom and forgetting to eat, that he's believing that this is better than being around, you know, the sheep that believe that psychism and clairvoyance is real, even people who would share his interests. It's a dark, dark image of a human being. I think one of, one of the ways that this story is really functioning right now is that the way that even you and I are talking about what's going on in this story is not taking Jones's belief about this other region very seriously. And I don't think that Blackwood wants us to, but Jones does take this very seriously. He, he doesn't think that he's just sitting on the floor of his uh, attic level apartment. He really does think that he is traveling to this world of the perfect forms, this place that he thinks of as the other region. Though Blackwood is not giving us very much of a, a direct narrative about things that happen to him while he's there, at least not yet. Uh, but I think in the next scene, we're going to see a little bit more of these worlds colliding here. Right. Jones goes home after this encounter at, at work. And then he goes out to dinner and he goes to the same restaurant pretty regularly. Other clerks go there too, because the food is good and it's cheap. And at the door of the restaurant, Jones gets this sensation and he, he recalls that he has somehow made an appointment with somebody, but he can't remember with who or where he made this appointment. And so he goes into the restaurant, but the nagging feeling persists and it grows. And suddenly he's aware that the person he is to be meeting is waiting for him at the restaurant. So he looks around and he sees a man in a corner seat in the restaurant and is immediately certain that the man is waiting for him. Jones experiences a flash of recognition and senses that he knows this man from years past. And indeed, it is the elderly clerk who had occupied the desk next to his when he started at the insurance company. A man who had shown him some kindness and empathy. That man's name was Thorpe, and he's been dead for five years Jones joins Thorpe at the table. Thorpe reminds Jones that they made the appointment in the other region, this world of dreams or forms. Jones and Thorpe sit together, talking for a little while. But eventually the waiter comes up and whispers something to Jones. And Jones realizes that the whole restaurant is looking at them. So the men leave. Blackwood, Blackwood doesn't say anything explicit here, but I think what we're meant to infer is that Everyone is looking at him and whispering and laughing a little bit because Jones is talking to himself. Basically, it's, it's the exact plot of Fight Club. He thinks there's another person there, but it's actually just him the whole time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's obvious that Blackwood wants us to believe that Jones is by himself in the restaurant. But what I love about what Blackwood does is he never drops Jones' perspective that there's something wrong with everybody else. And he's the one that's okay. He just met... A friend, the only maybe the only friend he's ever had, the person who showed him kindness five years ago or more. And I just think Blackwood's handling of this is exceptional. The men wander the streets, and Jones somehow knows where they're headed, though he doesn't know the destination. They travel a long way to a remote part of London, and eventually Jones begins to see the world as it truly is. He finally pierces the veil. Thorpe moves besides Jones without a sound. Eventually, the men are standing alone in a lonely lane, and Thorpe removes his coat and his false beard and explains to Jones that he has come out of the past to repay an old debt, an old kindness that Jones had paid him once long ago. Jones needs help, and Thorpe is there to guide him. What's crazy to me about this, as an aside, is that just a few paragraphs ago, we get 
this idea of Thorpe being kind to Jones. He's an older worker, maybe knows, has been a clerk for a long time, knows the ropes, knows what it's like, takes him under his wings. And the way Jones approaches this is that in a past life, he must have done something great to this person to deserve it. Jones's sense of human relationships and even causality uh, is is not not quite right here at this moment. Uh, something else I thought was interesting about their walk, you know, they 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 walk north from the Tower of of London and as they're walking they they travel to this other region and what's interesting to me about this is that the other region uh, appears very much like an agrarian sector of early modern London. Like it's it's rooted in historical London. It doesn't actually seem to be this land of poets and and saints that he described, you know, just five pages previously. Right. I think Jones is just grasping at what he knows in his imagination to make the world up. Thorpe continues his explanation about what's going on to Jones. He explains that he is indeed dead, Thorpe is, and that he recognized Jones' need for help with the manager. They continue to walk a little further along until they arrive at a large house. The house was standing, gaunt and lonely, in the shadows at the edge of a wood. It was wrapped in utter stillness, with windows heavily draped in black. I love that description uh, of a house here. And a lot of the writing around the house is spooky and fantastic. This passage is a, is a tease for the, the wilderness stuff of Blackwoods that I love so much. This is the only part of the story where he gets to really stretch his descriptive legs. And yeah, I'm in awe. I'm enraptured by his ability to describe the heck out of everything. It's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And it's awesome. Thorpe opens the door to the house and Jones feels the uncoiling of something that had been asleep for ages. This is the house of the past, whispers Thorpe. It is full of all the memories of Joan's past lives. Right. So this is where we learn that Thorpe is basically Marley from A Christmas Carol. He's a dead person. He's a ghost who's going to take his business associate on a trip through his own past in order to teach him some sort of a a lesson. It's, It's awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and Thorpe does guide Jones through the eerie interior of this house because Jones has been permitted to see the memory that he needs in order to do what must be done with the manager. Once Jones sees the memory, we learn he will be permitted by the powers that be or whomever to either administer the sword of justice or rise to the level of great forgiveness. It's his choice. It's, no, it's neutral. The powers don't care which one he does but I'll have the option. Thorpe guides Jones to a small door and instructs Jones to watch silently as the scene unfolds before them. It is a memory of torture. Jones watches a scene of a man in chains being tortured to reveal a name during the time, I suppose, of the Spanish Inquisition. They are asking him to betray a friend, which he will not do. The head inquisitor is the tall, thin man from his dreams. And the torture continues and ends in Jones's murder. Jones relives this painful experience as he watches it. And in a moment, it all ends. And Jones is transported outside of the house with Thorpe. The doors of the house close. And a veiled figure with a flaming sword now guards the entrance. Thorpe explains the memory to Jones. The head torturer is the manager, and the friend that Jones did not betray is none other than Thorpe himself. Jones notes that it must have been a powerful force that brought them all together once again in this present life, and he asks Thorpe what he should do. Thorpe repeats what he said before. He can punish or forgive. Jones shivers and shakes and discovers that he is home. In his cold rooms, he had fallen asleep in his armchair without even removing his office coat, and he's ravenously hungry because he hasn't eaten. Well, he got kicked out of the restaurant for talking to himself before he got a chance to eat anything, so of course he's hungry. There's, As you point out, Brandon, there's a very interesting notion of justice and forgiveness in this scene, and, and I think we're going to spend much of the discussion unpacking that 
I want to go back to this memory that he has of the, the Spanish Inquisition around 1500. This past incarnation of the manager as the torturer uh, must be a priest. He must be a, a Dominican friar. And so what he would be trying to learn from Jones then, around, you know, in the Inquisition around the year 1500, is the name of someone who he knows to be a secret Jew or a secret Muslim, what's, what's called a, a converso, someone who has pretended to convert to Christianity, which was a legal mandate at the time, but hadn't really done so uh, in his heart and was probably still secretly worshiping. And so it may also be that Jones here in this past life is also a secret Jew or a Muslim and that this manager figure is trying to learn the name of the person who leads their worship services or something. This is not actually going to come back in the story and not quite certain what to do with this or if Blackwood even really wanted us to be thinking in that much detail about this. I, I suppose Blackwood wasn't really uh, writing this story for someone who's you know just about to be teaching this uh, in class in the next semester. Right. I don't know that Blackwood has done enough sort of world building around Jones for us to even make the claim if Jones even knows what he's looking at in this past life. So it's not even clear to me, as you say that, that Jones has any deep knowledge of the Spanish Inquisition, but that this is just a popular, that this is just something he can hang his hat onto when he thinks about his torture in history in the past. And those are the things that are meaningful to him, not the actual history of the Inquisition. Right. And we should say that this this idea of what the Spanish Inquisition is, which we probably all learned about from Monty Python sketches, uh, really actually dates from the 19th century and from England. And though Blackwood is writing 40 years after the, the real height of that, the reading public in England, the reading public in, in Britain, or really the English-speaking world, if you want to tell them that something is the worst torture imaginable, this is what you invoke for that. So I think you're probably right, that it is really just a shorthand way. He's he's going for em an emotional response to this, not an intellectual response, uh, trying to kind of decode who these people might be and what Blackwood might be saying about uh, beliefs in God or something like that. Well, with Jones waking up and us left wondering whether the whole evening was a dream or not. Uh, the chapter ends and we move into chapter three. After this event that takes up all of chapter two, Jones continues with his life and he behaves outwardly as if nothing has changed within him. Yet he cannot shake the vision of the manager as the man who murdered him in the past. Although his work is still going fine, Joan finds that Thorpe stays with him in his apartment. And Thorpe encourages Jones to wait until he gives the sign that it's all clear that he can f do the thing he needs to do to remedy the past. Jones himself realizes that he doesn't have it within himself to forgive the manager his past indiscretions. And he becomes obsessed with enacting vengeance. Well, while Thorpe is, I don't know, I guess living with Jones, he's is really almost badgering him about this this vengeance, although he actually calls it justice. And he, he presents it to Jones, uh, this this opportunity to do this. He presents it as a, as a favor that Jones is being given by what he calls the invisibles of the other region. But I think very quickly it becomes clear to us that Thorpe is pressuring Jones to take them up on this favor. It's it's not something that he can, or at least not something that he should turn down. Jones either has to act, he has to carry out this act of, of vengeance or justice, perhaps, or he's going to be perpetually haunted by Thorpe. So he even feels like he's losing his agency in this situation. Right. And I think Thorpe himself wants to move on in some way. He's a ghost. He was brought back to life to guide Jones through this mission. And the fact that Jones has walked away from forgiveness means that Thorpe can't leave Jones alone. That's Jones' own choice. So what Jones does is he goes out and he buys a new pistol. And he spends his time becoming an expert marksman. He maps out the manager's office and he learns how to shoot perfectly anything within a distance of 25 feet, which is, he discovers, the furthest he would be from the manager at any time in the office. 
He spends his time stealing himself for the moment of confrontation. He recalls the pain of his torture, the hot irons that pierced his eyes, the feeling of being roasted to death. As Jones is training, he's also just waiting for the right moment to kill the manager. And he finds that at different times when he's ready to do it, he's interrupted. The head cashier now never seems to leave him alone. And he feels as though he's always under surveillance. The weather outside is getting worse. It's getting hotter and hotter. And summer is just in its height. Finally, though, Thorpe approves of the moment of action. July is coming to a close. And the manager comes in one day. And Thorpe joins him in his office. Blackwood's depiction of, of how it's getting hotter and hotter as the, the summer comes on and what it's like to be wearing a, uh, a, a heavy suit in an office without air conditioning or fans in the middle of the summer is, is really uh, evocative, really powerful. It, it reminded me of uh, you know, a black and white noir film. Like you just know that murder is about to happen because it is getting hotter and people are... are losing their sense of themselves in this heat. But I, I think that the the temperature outside, the fact that it's getting hotter because it's summer, I think that's actually meant to coincide with uh, these other things that you're narrated, this, this imagining of feeling the hot instruments and the raw fire that were used to torture Jones during the Inquisition. All of this, I, I think, taken together is, is hellish imagery and and I wonder if the the hot chains and the hot irons that are, are are poking at his eyes are the memory of something that happened to Jones in his previous life or if this is really a taste of the the torment that awaits him in hell if he actually commits this murder if it's not actually a bit of the the future that he's seeing rather than a bit of the the past that's something worth unpacking though my my gut is that the way the story is set up in terms of metaphysics and Jones' total lack of belief in what religious people have to say is that, at least in Jones' mind, he is reimagining the past. The reason why Jones ignores what religious people have to say is because they're focused on the future and what will happen. And he's very busy trying to figure out what has happened. Well, we're very quickly approaching the, the end, the climax of this, of this story, which I'm, I'm very interested to talk about. Yes. Yeah, so the manager and Jones are in the office and the manager is clearly uncomfortable with Jones. So he rings the bell uh, for the head cashier and asks Jones to leave to get some papers. But Thorpe tells Jones he must do the deed today. So Jones returns later that day to the manager's office and is encouraged by Thorpe to do it now. Jones locks the door behind him. The manager asks who told him to lock the door, and Jones replies, the voice of justice. And now the manager is absolutely terrified. And it doesn't get easier for the manager as Jones begins to explain that he has been tortured by the manager 400 years ago, and that the dispensers of justice have chosen Jones to punish this man. Jones then shoots the manager in the wrists and ankles the places where Jones was held by the chains. And then he fires two more shots into the manager's eyes where the Inquisitor placed the pokers. The door is bashed down and Jones turns the gun on himself, forgetting that his pistol only chambers six rounds. The gun clicks and nothing happens. And Jones is taken down by the intruders and restrained. I had to do it, he said. It was simply my duty, and now I am ready to face the consequences, and Thorpe will be proud of me, for justice has been done, and the gods are satisfied. Jones does not resist arrest. He sees the veiled figure with the flaming sword moving majestically in front of him, keeping back the host of faces that are thronging in upon him from the other region. And this where our story ends. The violence at the end of this story is truly horrific. And, and while Blackwood doesn't 
ever give us any narrative from the perspective of the other clerks in the office, as, as you indicated, Brandon. The description of their reaction to Jones's violence, I think, is a, enough to tell us about their fear and, and their panic and, the, and their horror. And I, I found myself really empathizing with them as victims of Jones's crime, even though Blackwood doesn't narrate that at all. And it might not even be something that Blackwood was thinking about when he was writing this story, you know, in around 1905. But here, 110, 115 years later, when workplace violence is a, a real fear that many of us have in our jobs. I work at a university, so this is, in fact, something that I think about uh, the first day of every semester when I have new classrooms, is knowing how I'm going to get students to safety if this were to happen there. Because of that, because we're primed in some way to be imagining those situations, this description here at the end really resonated with me in an extremely powerful way. And so I think the first thing that I just want to talk about as we transition into the discussion, Brandon, is what was your response to to this? I was absolutely horrified by the way this story ended. And I think Blackwood is able to move the reader into the mind of the manager in this moment somehow, which is excellent because you're reading this story from the point of view of this Jones character. And at the moment, at the end, realize that nobody shares this reality with Jones. And the manager is sitting there hearing this absolute nonsense about how he was a torturer 400 years ago for the Spanish Inquisition, and he deserves retribution, and just really filled me with fear and and dread, a really palpable sense of what insanity looks like. We're looking at somebody who has a split personality, as Blackwood puts it in the story. The increasing instability that requires people in his office to all take precaution around him. They all want to know where he is and what he's up to. Nobody wants to be alone with him anymore. He's become this terrifying figure. And I know they didn't have a modern HR department back then, but they don't seem to fire him. He's not doing anything that requires firing, uh, but he's becoming increasingly unhinged. And I think people are beginning to notice. And I think there's real fear that Blackwood pumps into the end of the story uh, that comes across very well. And it's, it's just absolutely horrifying. It's dreadful. It's masterful. He clearly knows his craft and how to tell us this story from a, a single and very narrow point of view, just from the protagonist's point of view and deep in his own mindset, but yet somehow can still show us rather than tell us what this story must look like from the perspective of these other people. Blackwood never tells us that people in the office are shunning him or are afraid to be alone with him because he's a weirdo. He's someone who is really off-putting to them, but we see it. He, he shows that to us without ever having to point it out or spell it or spell it out that he is completely antisocial and that this makes people uncomfortable. This is really awesome uh, craft at work here. But I think that something that people will often point to in Blackwood is that he writes a lot. He uses a lot of words to tell his story, more words than perhaps another writer might use. And so, Brandon, I did also want to ask you how you responded to the, I don't know, effluviant prose here. Was it too much? Did it work for you? How might you have edited this story if it was uh, you know, coming across your uh, hypothetical desk as the uh, editor of, uh, of a weird fiction magazine today? As I said in the beginning, I think there are choices made uh, by Blackwood that an editor could easily remove and do no harm to the story. Uh, like I said, he repeats himself in different terms over and over again, and it doesn't necessarily shed new light. He could say the thing he means to say once and get the same reaction. There are probably 200 words that could go in this story without doing harm to the story in any way and still have the same exact response and result. So while you can't deny the effect that this story has on you as a reader, it's conceptual brilliance, it's beautiful prose, it does still need an editor with a good eye to trim it down a little bit, I think. And it wouldn't do any harm to what Joan, what Blackwood has put together. I think that's probably a fair criticism a hundred years on. Our, our tastes in reading are a little bit different. We're 
not particularly patient as a, as as consumers of of literature or or television or any kind of storytelling at this point. And I do think that Blackwood takes a long time really getting to something actually going on in the story that he's building up the the mood of the piece and and a little too much perhaps of of the setting and even maybe the the mindset of Jones before we get into the action that said I absolutely adore this story and I'm I'm happy with it the way it is. Well, I'm going to look forward to getting into some of his other types of stories, his wilderness stories. He's also a huge writer of occult detective stories and uh, see if maybe this type of writing works better in some of those subgenres. Well, let's move on to the, the real substance of this story. The story is called The Insanity of Jones, but it is subtitled A Study in Reincarnation. And so I think at, at, at its core, one of the things that Blackwood is is wanting us to do or is asking us to do with this story is to decide for ourselves or to, to ask if Jones is a person who is insane, if, if all of this is just in his head, or if this business with the other region and reincarnation is real, is, is something that is actually happening. I don't know, maybe a way to think about it is if we were to narrate this story from outside of Jones's perspective, how would we do that? I think if we were to narrate this story from the outside, it would be a very boring story. The only way to tell a story like this with a character like this is through their own interiority. Because by all accounts, he's just like everybody else around him. He goes to work, he eats, he doesn't make a fuss, he does a good job. He's boring. He's uninteresting. He's a bad character. If you're just looking at him from the outside, you'd judge him the same way that he judges all of the other people he works with in his office, that he doesn't get to know, that he doesn't believe have interiority in the same way that he does. So I think that's a great decision on Blackwood's part to tell the story in this way. I think we're looking at a character here who feels as though they were never able to fully reveal their greatness. Somebody that's maybe akin to like a, like a mall ninja, you know, who so <laughs> buys all the gear and has it. But like, what are they training for? What's it for? Somebody who feels this a real sense of despair about why they're continuing to go to work, about what it's going to get them, feel that they missed their opportunity to be great in some way. And even in his own fantasies, isn't great. He's, I must have always been a peasant or a lowly person because why else would I end up a clerk in an in- insurance shop? So I think Jones does have some real mental health issues. He's got a real crisis on his hands. And when he sees, when he sees this person, this assistant manager that becomes the manager, receive acclamation, affirmation, praise, from all the people above him and his company, he's filled with envy and rage. And the way he processes is he processes it is to say that this person has wronged me in the past. And in a weird way, I think his obsession with this person as it forms over 10 years catches that person's attention because he's good at his job. He rises along with this manager and he's subject to the abuse from the manager as well, which only justifies his delusions. You could imagine, though the manager is murdered unjustly in this story, you could imagine that if the manager had turned out to be of great character, turned out to be kind and supportive and empathetic to Jones, uh, the same way Jones perceives Thorpe as being, his fantasy about the manager would be about how he must have helped the manager in his past life. And his own sense of self-sacrifice has elevated this person to the next level above him. And there wouldn't be a problem of justice in the in the story that he needs to bring into account. Well, I guess what I mean when I say what we might do if we were going to narrate this story from outside of Jones's perspective is to get away from the ambiguity. I mean, the way the reason this story works so well, what makes this story so great, is that it is in Jones's perspective. So we don't know if this other region and the Invisibles are real or if they are just in Jones's mind. The the contrasting title and subtitle of the story calls that into question. 
there it's not a there's not a label that we can give to this story that definitively answers it. So I guess when I was asking us to to think about how we might narrate that, I mean I think you looked at what the the story would look like from the perspective of someone else who works in the office. But we could write this story with all the elements that are in here from Blackwood as an urban fantasy story if we're writing it from a third person omniscient perspective rather than a third person limited perspective where we get some narrative that is about Jones and things Jones is doing, but then we could also have narrative from the ghost of Thorpe, where we know the ghost of Thorpe is a real character because we're getting the narrative from his perspective. We could, in fact, meet some of these invisibles hanging out in their cool garden with the veiled figures, having a conversation about what justice is and how it works, and maybe they should give it to Jones or not. But we don't we don't get that, and that's how this story works. So I guess I wanted to think about it in those terms, really as a way of kind of pinning down, do we think that those elements of the story are real, or if this really is just in Jones's mind? I mean, I think it's clear that, that you don't think this is, a, this is a study in reincarnation. You think this is a story about the insanity of Jones. Is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment. Well, I'm certainly not going to advocate for this being a study in reincarnation, but I would be interested to hear what listeners have to think about this if there's someone who does want to champion that reading of the text. I'm actually going to skirt this issue altogether and offer what I think of as as being a third possibility here, which I think is hinted at in part three. And, and this third option is that what's actually going on in the story is that Jones has been caught in a supernatural battle for his soul between the forces of good and evil or God and the devil, if you will. And that this is maybe a weird fiction adaptation of Job or any number of medieval saints lives because Jones is presented with the the choice here of forgiveness or vengeance. And his choice is going to determine whether God or the devil gets his soul in, in my reading. And in this scheme, then Thorpe is actually the devil who is tricking Jones, who is trying to get him to make this bad choice. And that's where I think that this hellish imagery with the, the, the hot weather and the, the fire and the hot pokers uh, to me, I think that's where that comes in. I suspect you're going to think that's an insane reading as well. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hearing it. <laughs> well, I don't think it's insane, but I really do quibble with it just because of the way the story is presented to us as a limited third person perspective, where we get Jones' view on religion. And we're being asked to believe so much in the story of what Jones believes in order to make the story work. And perhaps Blackwood is doing something by there being a conflict between what we believe about religion, perhaps. Uh, when the story is written and what Jones believes. But the fact that we're so close to Jones and that he has no interest in what will happen to his soul because he knows it'll just be reincarnated, his interest in it is in what has happened. That to me, that doesn't read as anything that would interest Jones, who is our guide through this world. That there he wouldn't be interested in whether there was a a fight for his soul, whether the God would claim it or the devil would claim it. Well, let me just elaborate a little bit more on this. And I, I, I agree with you because it's clearly not the central conflict of the story. And it's, it's actually not maybe much of a conflict at all. But there is this interesting element in the story about justice and forgiveness and mercy and pity that is raised. And we, we get this conversation in the house of the past between Jones and Thorpe when Jones says, well, why did I see this? Why did you show me this vision? And Thorpe says... For the purpose of justice, which sometimes is entrusted to the hands of those who suffered and were strong. One wrong cannot be put right by another wrong, but your life has been so worthy that the opportunity is given to you. And and he says, you may punish, or if you can rise to the level of a great forgiveness, you can do that. I mean, this is a pretty grotesque notion of what justice is as a, a special gift that the powers that be, the invisibles, will grant a person when he's suffered a lot. And and Thorpe tells Jones that he's been given permission to murder because he suffered, you know, torture in his previous life. And and then he almost taunts him with the notion of forgiveness as an afterthought. So it, it I don't know, to me that felt like it was something of a, a trick that part of the, the deal between God and the devil or good, the forces of good and evil here are that Jones has to be presented with 
all the options and that Thorpe is doing that to the, the letter of the, the law, the letter of the rule, but not presenting each case in a balanced way or, or equitably. Right. I think it's, it's just so important that all of this vision comes, this experience for Jones comes after he is so belittled at the office. And that is maybe the most important fact of the book. This is somebody who experienced humiliation and is now having a vengeance fantasy about it. So if we look at the definition of justice, the simple definition, which is just to to give a person their due, then that definition of justice is not presented here because what is due to the manager who doesn't remember his past life, this is a real problem. Is the person who commits a crime but then is an amnesiac the same person who committed the crime? Um, is that the person who committed the crime, right? It's a it's it's a challenging question. So how can you hold somebody accountable for an act they don't remember in a life they would never claim to have lived? It's not a coherent question. And what are they do as a result of it? Are they do some sort of punishment? Um, is you enacting the punishment as a moral agent the best way to get justice, or is that revenge? So. You know, as I was reading this story, I kind of read the offer for forgiveness as kind of the one Thorpe was rooting for. But you read it kind of in the complete opposite sense, that Thorpe is really pushing for vengeance, though masked in the language of justice. But I think we know that there's no way Jones can forgive the manager for belittling him so deeply, and so he's justifying his his murder. I don't think justice is is possible. Forgiveness is often the only option. There's, and that's why the the language of debts is used so heavily here and accounts, because that is actually the language for forgiveness is an accounting sort of language. It is saying you don't owe me that back, or there's a letting go of what is owed or what is due. So justice is really a balancing of accounts. Forgiveness is a, is a clearing of the account. And so I don't think justice is possible in this story. The only action he should have taken was to clear the account. But he's plagued by his own, by his past, and he's unable to process it, except in this fantasy world he's created. And certainly the, the notion of accounts and balancing accounts keeping track of of things and, and particularly ledgers. I mean, that's the business that he's doing as a clerk in this insurance office. So that's a part of the reality of both of these worlds that he inhabits, our real world and then this other region. I do want to point out one more thing before we, we move on to our last topic, which is that I don't know that we actually said this at all in, in the recap or in our conversation up to this point, but Jones does work specifically in a fire insurance company. So again, we have fire having something to do with what's going on in this story. And to me, I just don't think I can see all this fire imagery and not think that that something is going on here with hell or the devil. I, I know it's not a particularly compelling argument that I don't have real great evidence from the text, uh, but it is gnawing at me. It's been gnawing at me really since my first reading of the of the story this week. So I would love to hear what what listeners might have to say about it. Yeah, me too. I think it's a great reading, but I just, if it's there, it's underbaked and that's Blackwood's problem as a writer. Maybe not your problem as a reader. Well, now, now that you have teased our upcoming uh, podcast series on the Great British Baking Show, uh, let's let's talk about the, the last thing that I want to do here, which is to uh, look at this question of, of forgiveness and justice um, as it relates to Blackwood's own life, to Blackwood's biography. Uh, and, and this is something that I, I took from a, a note that uh, the great weird fiction scholar S.T. Joshi has in the, the Penguin Classics edition of Blackwood's stories that I read this out of. And, and there, Joshi connects this story to an episode in Blackwood's autobiography. It's, it's a text that he wrote. Um, there's a, an incident about his relationship with his roommate when Blackwood lived in New York City as a reporter. Uh, that roommate was stealing cash from him, and, and Blackwood was, you know, understandably angry about this. But he decided to confront the roommate in order to forgive him. And in that text, in, in his autobiography, Blackwood uses the words kind and gentle and pity when he describes the way that he's engaging with this roommate who's been stealing from him. 
But in the end, the roommate kept stealing from him, or he took this second chance and continued in his bad behavior. And ultimately, Blackwood decided to have him arrested for stealing from him. So it seems that Blackwood himself wrestled with exactly this type of dilemma, much less murdery way and uh, certainly not at all supernatural. But I mean, this is a dilemma that we all face in our lives when people wrong us. And it's interesting to see this story as growing out of Blackwood's own personal journey with this dilemma of of wanting to punish someone for the wrongdoing, but also wanting to forgive. One of the reasons why justice is considered of a virtue and a good is not because it gives necessarily satisfaction to the person who has been wronged, though that is maybe a side goal of it, but that it actually stops the wrongdoing of the person doing wrong. And that's why you need a just society, a just community. You need a theory of justice in order to move through the world. Not a distorted one like Jones had, but there are certain things where you can seek both justice and forgiveness. Petty crime is one of those things where if somebody is wronging you, is taking from you, and not paying you back, you owe it to both of you to stop them from doing it and and then try to get your property back. I mean, this is the whole theory of, of tort law. If somebody destroys something of your property, they have to restore it back to you in some way. And it doesn't mean that restoration is the same thing you get that was lost. I don't think that's possible. But justice is dealing in in the world of of real material, of real objects. You know, we would never say it's just for a person who has murdered maybe somebody in your family to go murder somebody in their family as a result. That's not justice. Our whole system of law is based on moral activity and agents and theories of individual responsibility. So, and, and also common good. And and one thing that makes justice impossible for Jones is that he does not belong to a community. There's no common good that he is acting on the behalf of. And he has to create his own world in order to justify his actions to himself. When people participate in society actively and recognize what they belong to, the common good is and can be a powerful motivator for moral action and moral activity. And justice is rooted in the common good. It's not necessarily the best thing to just deploy the, you know, Hammurabi's code, an eye for an eye, uh, a tooth for a tooth. That's not justice as we act in our society. And that's what Jones is thinking of as justice. And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you bring up that story and, and that anecdote and Blackwood's own struggle with this, how mercy, how forgiveness failed him because justice was the right tool to use in that circumstance and forgiveness was not. Uh, he wrote a story about a character who should have used forgiveness but cannot because they don't have a sense of the common good. They have no empathy or kindness for themselves and it's maybe a study of a person that he thinks maybe was more like his roommate than like himself. Ultimately, it does feel like this is a story about someone who is struggling to have happiness in his everyday life. And rather than own up to that, rather than take some responsibility or some agency about that, you know, begins innocuously to construct a sort of fantasy where this real world that is so miserable is not the actual world. There's this better place and I have special access to it because even though I don't have any friends and I'm stuck in this miserable job, there's still something great and special about me. I don't know if that's a healthy way to cope with that or not, but it's certainly uh, not a malign way to cope with it. But I think what we see in this story is a transformation into this escapism becoming a, a real problem, this break with reality becoming a real problem where feeling persecuted, feeling anger, these become things that Jones can't deal with 
in a, a productive way or even a, a rational way because he's lost a sense of what is real and, and what isn't. And ultimately, it's a, it's a real tragic story. Uh, it's, it's also a real tragic story about a society that doesn't have uh, mental health at all uh, in, in any real way to, to speak of. Right. And it's oddly prescient because I think that that is the world a lot of people live in where it's easy to escape and to distract yourself and to increasingly only go to work or to make money in order to exist in your fantasy world. We just put a name on it, you know, the internet (laughs) where people can do anything and it's all activity that is unembodied it's it's disembodied activity it's and and that's part of the problem here we have the same type of character who feels encumbered by his body who doesn't pay attention to his body and only takes action in his mind and that is a real illness action belongs in the world your action should impact material ends and he acts in his mind so much to the point that he dissociates his and justifies his vicious and violent actions in the world. Um, and it's a story that describes a psychology, I think, of a great of a great many people uh, today. So I, you know, it's a haunting story. Haunting, strangely prescient. I mean, these are great labels you've just given this story. And I, I would like to just add heartbreaking to that list of labels. But I think on that note, although I think we could probably keep talking about this story for quite a while, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple Forum and let us know what you thought of this story, how you think that this might relate to the contemporary world. Also, come let us know if you think that the other region is actually a real place, that Brandon and I have totally misread this story. I would really love to hear an argument uh, in favor of that. Next time, we'll be reading The Planet of the Dead by Clark Ashton Smith. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.